0: Good day, everyone. Jose Nino here, your estimable host, bringing you another episode of El Nino Speaks. Today, I'm joined by YouTuber and cosplayer Kenzie Puff. Without a doubt, she's the most pro liberty and private property cosplayer you will find putting out content on YouTube and social media. So tell my audience about yourself and what got you into cosplay, Kenzie.
1: Yeah, it's honestly really strange. I was completely apolitical before around 2015. And I also hadn't heard of what cosplay was. <laughs> so I got into both things around the same time. So 2016, I went to my first anime convention. I mostly do anime cosplays and costumes for people that don't know. A few comic stuff, but mostly Japanese is, is my focus with that kind of stuff. And I just fell in love with it. It was really nice to meet people in fandoms. That's what I like the most, going to conventions, is just meeting people in the same fandoms that you are and just bonding with them over that. Unfortunately, a few years in, I realized that that's pretty much all you can talk about when it comes to conventions, because otherwise, uh, you might get in trouble uh, (laughs) with the convention police. (laughs) So... It's been great. I still have a lot of friends. I, I haven't gone to conventions in a while, obviously, with all the craziness over the past two, two and a half years at this point with the 19, I guess I'll call it. Yeah, So I haven't sickness. been to an actual convention in a while, but I still cosplay at home, still share my costumes and stuff from my house and on my social media. So it's definitely something I still enjoy, regardless of, of how crazy the other people involved can be.
0: <laughs> yeah, I've, from the... Um... Outside, like looking in, I've noticed that like, cosplay tends to like span various genres, whether it's like anime, cartoons, manga, video games, etc. What are like your favorite characters to cosplay as?
1: Yeah, sure. So one of my favorites, one that I'm kind of known for, which is hilarious because she's not even one of my favorite characters. It's just kind of something I've been associated with because of my social media is Asuka from Evangelion, Neon Genesis Evangelion, um, and that's an anime. And then my other personal favorites are a character called Taiga from Toradora, which is a rom-com, which is usually not my style, but I like the tsundere for the anime fans that are out there. Right? And if it's a Sundere, I'll probably cosplay it. <laughs> <And> that's just <laughs> the personality type of character I tend to like. And those are my two favorites. And then more recently, those I've been cosplaying since probably 2016. I just still have the cosplays and have updated the costumes. And more recently... I've gotten into cosplaying Megumin from Konosuba, the anime, and she's been a really popular one too. So that's always fun. Those are probably my top three. The first two being ones I've cosplayed for a long time. And Megumin's definitely the most recent one that I've cosplayed that I really like and have worn over and over again because it's just, she's a hilarious character and I kind of like gag characters like that. So
0: So one point that made me somewhat intrigued about this whole cosplay scene that you mentioned is about like the convention police because when I think of cosplay (laughs) politics is not something I would associate with it like right off the bat but like as we've seen over I'd say like the past 50 years or so there's been a lot of cultural activities where the left has like infiltrated virtually all of these like spheres of life has cosplay largely fallen down that route as well
1: yeah, absolutely. And I didn't even watch anime before 2016. I got into anime and immediately got into cosplay. So I'm not an old head, I'm not a longtime anime fan. So I will put that out there for anyone who might be listening that's a little bit confused about where I'm coming from. So when I started going to conventions, I didn't realize that they had become so politicized. I didn't realize that it was very much, at least the outspoken people, I'll say, because I have had people reach out to me and say, hey. I'm not crazy, you're not crazy either. I like you, but they won't publicly say it because they have a bunch of friends who don't have the same political opinions as they do, which is really sad to me, but because of course it's okay for the left-leaning people to say their political opinions, but you know. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah. <laughs> if you're
1: right of like if you're right of like Mao, you know, that's not acceptable. So, I noticed very quickly that the gay community, like LGBT stuff was heavily present at anime conventions like they would do special panels and a lot of people who wouldn't be in costumes would carry on pride flags and stuff like that and I'm not exactly sure at what point those two intersected but I think that has a lot to do with left-leaning politics getting so involved in conventions which I find really weird because to me I know all kinds of people that like anime it's not you know <laughs> it's not necessarily an LGBT thing but I think that's more recent, probably in like the last five to 10 years. And at this point, I know people that don't even go to conventions anymore because they're so annoyed and that kind of stuff is just all over the place at conventions. And it's really, really weird. It doesn't seem to make any sense. But I think that's a big reason why they became so politicized so quickly.
0: So what's the most popular cosplay convention like in the US? And also, what's like the overall structure of these conventions?
1: Yeah, so a lot of the big ones are on the coast, which I, uh, both coasts actually, which I haven't had the pleasure to go to. Um, there's Anime Expo on the West Coast. And then on the East Coast, there's all kinds. There's like Katsu KatsuCon. There's actually, honestly, if we're just going to talk cons, there's such a big overlap between comics and anime cosplay. Like you'll usually see both even at an anime convention. It's just become a thing that, you know, oh, I can cosplay whatever I want at any con. So Comic-Con, obviously, in New York is a huge convention and you'll see all kinds of stuff there. Neither of which I've had the pleasure of going to, and I'm not sure I ever will at this point with all the craziness. But usually there are panels that you can go to where people discuss different fandoms and different topics and what's going on. And there's a schedule you can look at and see what panels you want to go to and what you want to talk about. And those are fun because it's an opportunity to listen to other people talk about topics you might like or theories about certain series and things like that. For example, One Piece, which is super popular in the anime world, obviously. There's usually a One Piece panel at anime conventions where they talk about theories and what they think is going to come next and things like that. So that's always fun. So it's basically panels, and then there's dances usually at night. You can go to little raves and things like that, and... Then throughout the day, one of the most fun things for me is just walking around the vendor room and just looking at all the merchandise and stuff you can buy. So (laughs) there's always cool artists who do their versions of things and sell different products and t-shirts and and fashion and all kinds of stuff like that. And at big conventions like those on the coast, the vendor rooms are obviously huge. So you can spend hours just walking around looking at all the little trinkets and stuff. So, And then, of course, when you're walking around, if you're in costume, people stop you and ask to take your picture, or want to know about your cosplay and what character you are and things like that. So that's the most fun part to me is people stopping me and wanting to talk about the series that I'm cosplaying from or being so excited that I'm cosplaying it because... For me, especially cosplaying from Evangelion, I mean, that's a pretty old anime. So, I'm not saying you don't see it a lot, especially now that they released it on Netflix last year, two years ago now? I can't even remember. The years are blending together, but... (laughs) So, there's been a resurgence of Evangelion cosplayers, sort of. But before that, like in 2016, I decided to cosplay her because I had just seen that anime. And people would stop me and go, I have not seen an Asuka cosplayer in so long. Like, especially in the Midwest, where the smaller conventions are, you don't see that a lot. So if you cosplay kind of a niche character or something older, a lot of times, people get really excited about it. So that's the most fun part to me, obviously, as someone who wears costumes,
0: for sure. I will admit that I used to be a really big anime fan. Back in the day, I would watch like Yu Yu Hakusho, The typical like Dragon Ball Z and like Roni Kenshin Oh yeah, and other shows like that. Yeah. I actually like the genre and I like Japanese culture in general. Now, just like a sidebar in no particular order. What are your favorite anime series?
1: (laughs) It's most of the stuff I've cosplayed. Mm. I really like Evangelion, obviously, though it's weird and I understand it's not for everyone. And I'm not one of those fans of it that's like, if you don't like it, get out which a lot of Ava fans are like, (laughs) Um, but I'm not, contrary to popular belief. I also really like Toradora. That's, I just list that because it's pretty much the only rom-com I like, and that diversifies my, my taste a little bit. I really like JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. I have not watched the newest season yet that just came out, the anime at least, but that's one of my favorites, and... I just got into One Piece recently, actually. I'm very late to the game on One Piece. I'm not even like halfway through watching the anime. But that's something I resisted watching for a long time because for those that don't know, One Piece is really long. It's still ongoing and it's still getting animated and episodes and and manga chapters are still being released. So it's very intimidating for a lot of people, but... I have to admit I was wrong, and it's really good, and my husband had been trying to get me to watch it with him for a while, and I actually had to take about a four-month break because of some episodes that hit me emotionally that I just needed to process because the story writing's so good. Honestly, I like a lot of Shonen. Like, I like pretty much all the Gundam. My husband actually builds Gunpla kits, but... um, Oh, I love
0: Gundam as well. yeah, Yeah,
1: any Gundam. I mean, come on. How can you not like Gundam? And people are going to comment and be like, well, I don't like it. Well, fine. That is something if you don't like, I will judge you. <laughs> I also really like Hunter Hunter. That one's great. That's something I watched probably three years ago for the first time that I really like. A lot of like, honestly, battle and fighting stuff, which I know is is kind of weird. But I'm not really usually like a slice of life enjoyer where it's just kind of like your average, they go to high school or something like that. But I like stuff that's usually like sci-fi or fighting or like samurai or stuff like that. Like you said, Kenshin. I love Kenshin too. Just pretty much anything like that. So I think that's... Is that five? I don't even know. (laughs) I got sidetracked.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Looking back, like Gundam is probably one of my favorites because of like, not just like the fighting aspect, but there's like really strong like geopolitical themes and like overall war themes. And especially the older, like Zeta Gundam of, of like the 80s, which was like I think like the most like intense in terms of like a storyline and also just like the fact that they kill off so many characters was one that hit really hard. For me, I think though what got me like really into anime when I was like younger was like the Robotech series oh, and yeah. also Gundam Wing. Yeah Robotech is kind of funny because of the fact that it's like essentially like a ripoff of the Japanese Vacross series and then The guy, I think Carl Masix, his name, the creator of Robotech, just basically changed up like the storylines, but used all like the same animation and characters and just made it like more like into like this English series. It was basically kind of like in that space, the anime space, they call like that whole practice like uh, a Macycree, if you will, because of how he ripped off from the Macross series. But I, I still... Really enjoyed that. And it's like really popular in Latin American countries, like a Robotech to this day, especially among the Gen X and even like older millennial cohorts. But yeah, I don't really watch anime much these days, but it is like an interesting genre. Would you say that anime is less woke than the cosplay scene?
1: I think it depends. So definitely on social media, there's been kind of a surge of... So anime's gotten significantly more popular than when we were kids, like watching Gundam on TV, Gundam Wing and stuff like that. Like my husband has been into it really hardcore since he was a kid. He didn't just watch Gundam and stuff on Toonami, like he was reading manga and stuff like that. And so just talking to him, it's definitely gotten a lot worse. But honestly, it's mostly on social media. And honestly, I think most of them are just teeny boppers. They're just teenagers that just have been groomed in public schools <laughs> into wokeism, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and therefore, they're saying things like, oh, you can't like that character because of their age or something silly like that. Or like, oh, that, that anime girl has too big of boobs. Please don't post it. It's offensive <laughs> to me as a woman and things like that. Or there was a series that came out, I guess a couple years now. I can't even remember what it was called, but it was about zombie idol girls, and they were trying to say that one of them was trans, and so that was very cringy, obviously. But most anime fans, I find there is a huge section of (laughs) what I affectionately refer to as the anime right. And I joke about it all the time, especially during the Trump election, after he won, there was a huge <laughs> surge on anime Twitter of people photoshopping MAGA hats onto anime girls and, and things like that, which is absolutely <laughs> hilarious. And so there was like a there was a faction war between the more left-wing people that like anime and and the, <laughs> the ones who had photoshopped Trump hats on their anime profile pictures, which is always funny. But I think anime does tend to attract, regardless of the perception, a lot of right-wing people because. One of the great things about it is the Japanese don't care how much people screech (laughs) about things because at the end of the day, they understand that it's coming from Japan. They can do whatever they want with it. And regardless of what silly Westerners screech about. So you will very rarely see... For example, Japanese artists that just put out anime style art on Twitter, you will very rarely see them apologize for something that they've drawn. Not saying it doesn't happen, but compared to Western artists and like comic artists and things like that in the West who just constantly kowtow and say, oh, I'm so sorry, I drew this skin tone wrong and things like that. Japanese artists just don't care. And the same pretty much goes for anime studios and stuff in general. The only thing you will see is Western artists apps like Crunchyroll and like companies like that, when they subtitle the anime on their apps, sometimes they'll put in cringy like woke lines that don't really seem to fit. But that's obviously not the Japanese doing that or how the anime is supposed to go. They just kind of take liberty with that. But the fans, for the most part, there's a huge right-wing faction of of anime fans for sure, which is why I like it. And I mean, obviously, there's some right-wing anime fans because a lot of people follow me for politics and cosplay and i'm definitely right wing so <laughs> that's kind of nice i've kind of found my little niche home with the the right wing anime fans and they're pretty cool for the most part
0: <laughs> yeah i've always seen like east asian cultures especially japan as pretty woke proof because they just don't go through these like bizarre moral panics that you see across the west and those cultures just are not guilt based cultures like yeah. the us Western Europe, etc., and like actually, when you look at the animation, like Rurouni Kenshin, all like the characters they use just basically look like round-eyed Westerners, and there's like no, you don't see like some Japanese media outlet put out some think piece about how like these animations are problematic because they all look like white people and all this stuff right, that yeah. needs <laughs> to be like more Asiatic features, that kind of stuff. Like only in the West do people pull off. Olympic level mental gymnastics to talk about our so-called shortcomings with not having like sufficient amount of characters in a given literary or like film work it's dumb but yeah that's the state of the west these days (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) unfortunately (laughs) so yeah beyond like the cosplay work you do you are unique in how you have like pretty well-defined and principled views on politics such as like being in favor of private property and the freedom of association. How did you come to those views?
1: Yeah, I originally, I said I got involved in anime and, and cosplay and politics around the same time. Completely unrelated, obviously, but I got involved with politics for the first time in college, which could have gone very south, but thankfully it didn't. At the time, I Ended up being chapter president of a Young Americans for Liberty chapter, which started out of Students for Ron Paul, as I'm sure some of your listeners know. And so I got exposed to, I will say normie. (laughs) I hate that word now, but I'll say basic, very basic libertarian principles. We would wear t-shirts saying fiscally conservative, socially liberal back then and things like that, which (laughs) I now now realize has been an absolute disaster for the human race, but that's fine. Yes. Um, (laughs) Yeah, and definitely would not describe myself as that now, but it is how I got started. So I do credit them for that. I am glad that they existed so that I could at least get on the bridge to where I am now. And I did activism. I was fancied myself a student activist with Young Americans for Liberty and thought I was doing really important things, getting screeched at by a bunch of blue hairs on college campuses across my state. Though it was fun and it did teach me a lot about the left's real nature and how to actually deal with them or not deal with them at all. So that was very interesting. And then from there, I had some really good friends also involved with Young Americans for Liberty who I'd met at the national convention and things like that, who introduced me to the lovely folks at the Mises Institute, who are much more my speed when it comes to libertarianism and libertarian ideas. And from there, I actually started reading things instead of just shouting taxation is theft and slogans like that. On the internet at people and I read Rothbard and Hoppe and I mean I actually even started reading just at all just Hayek anything that I could read and eventually came to where I am now which I call myself a Hoppian, but to be honest that's just more to keep bad people away from me (laughs) than anything else yes I still very much call myself an anarcho-capitalist just as a general rule anarcho-capitalist libertarian But the Hoppian label is very effective for gatekeeping my social media and just honestly my own life. So that's why I call myself Hoppian in reference to Hans-Hermann Hoppe, obviously. So that's a whirlwind of where I came from and where I'm at now. (laughs) I started from the bottom, but that's okay.
0: (laughs) Well, that's actually a good point. Identifying yourself as like Hoppian or at the very least 90s Rothbard is a really good way to filter out basic generic, really regime libertarians at the end of the day, because those types, honestly, they're just like the, they're the Pinkertons, they're the privatized arm of the managerial regime, and they basically function as useful idiots in how they promote multiculturalism, deviant sexual lifestyles, and just like the overall narrative that you hear on the idiot box, like on a daily basis, so I'm really done with that, and yeah i'm I don't know if I really identify that much as libertarian though I will say this like Hoppe and Rothbard are like huge influences for me because they have like very voluminous works and they actually talk about issues that matter that unlike a lot of like libertarian commentators these days and I've been in this space since like two thousand seven or so Ron Paul's first presidential run, and there have definitely been significant changes since then and i venture to say for the worst in many respects. In your view, do you think that libertarianism these days is in a pretty dilapidated state?
1: Yeah, but my hot take on that. So just for context, I was with Young Americans for Liberty, which started out of students for Ron Paul from his 2012 campaign. But I didn't even know who Ron Paul was until I joined Young Americans for Liberty And even a year into it, before I had gone to the convention and met him and things like that, I wasn't even familiar with him, which with a lot of libertarians, that's insane. A lot of people, that's where they came from. That's how they started out. But not me. That's how oblivious I was.
0: (laughs) Same here. So
1: over the years, I have noticed that there's a lot of admiration, obviously, for Dr. Paul, which completely warranted, in my opinion. Obviously, now knowing what I know about him and his ideas and and what he did to get the quote-unquote liberty movement off the ground, I I appreciate it, obviously. But I will say, I think because of the legacy that he left, which in many ways was very good, I think a lot of people, especially in any kind of libertarian circles, even right-wing libertarians... Cling to that desperately. They want to go back to the time where everyone was shouting, end the Fed at Ron Paul rallies, and it was great, and we all felt awesome that we were libertarians and we all felt united. And I think clinging to that is a mistake. And I think that we should probably learn from that. I actually think it's really a good thing that libertarianism is splintering like it is and going into different factions. And I know that's why a lot of people don't want to call themselves libertarian anymore because. I mean, to be honest, it's just associated with leftism at this point, at least mainstream because of all the think tanks that, you know, yeah. And, or, you know, I say, I just had a interaction with someone the other night on Twitter saying, am I the only libertarian that doesn't smoke pot? And I was like, no, me neither. I'm not into drugs. And he said, that surprises me. And I thought, oh, that sucks. I don't want people to be surprised that I don't smoke pot, but that's what libertarian is synonymous with. Whether you want to blame that on Gary Johnson, I don't know, for <laughs> the Libertarian Party or, or whatever. But a lot of people also just don't want to be associated with the Libertarian Party. I certainly don't, um, for perhaps obvious reasons, maybe not. But I started to notice over the years, and this is why I drifted towards the Mises Institute and folks like that, and reading late Rothbard and Hoppe and those type of folks, I noticed over the years that even though we were all shouting, myself included, at the time when I was younger, this live and let live mantra, no one wanted to let me live my, my more conservative, for lack of a better word at this point, values. I'm Christian, never been shy about saying that on podcasts or otherwise. I talk about it every once in a while when it's brought up. And I was just noticing that just mentioning that a lot of people, especially people from like the Ayn Rand circles and things like that, and liberty organizations were very antagonistic towards me because of that. Yeah. And I almost got to the point where I didn't, I was just going to drop the libertarian label completely and maybe go places that really no one should go (laughs) politically because I was so frustrated. I was almost going to do, you know, a complete turnaround to fine. I'm not a libertarian. We don't need this. You people suck because they do. And I still think they do. <laughs> but I just tried to harness that into, no, I'm Christian. I'm libertarian. I'm an anarcho-capitalist. I don't care about you people. You people are crazy. It's obvious to everyone you're crazy. And luckily, and I'm, I'm very grateful for this, there are a lot of really good, larger right-wing commentators. More and more, I have seen them saying things when they criticize libertarians. They will put in a caveat But not the Hoppians, (laughs) which is absolutely fantastic. We love to see it because I think a lot of people in the libertarian space are very, they have a mob mentality, which obviously tends to happen when you start to have a group identity with any political group. So I get it to a certain extent, but I was starting to see these right wingers, because I wasn't calling myself right wing at the time, because you know, the old, it's not left wing or right wing, it's above the spectrum and things like that, (laughs) things that I said (laughs) when I was a baby libertarian. a lulbert as I call them now, I was starting to see right-wing people who I were led to believe were the exact same as these evil left-wing people say things criticizing libertarians and I was starting to agree with them. And I started to question myself and think, well, am I libertarian then? If I don't believe in this live and let live regardless of how degenerate it is, I don't know. And then luckily I found (laughs) late Rothbard, I guess, and which people had been telling me to stay away from for years don't read late Rothbard, that's dangerous. And then I read it and I understood exactly why those people thought that late Rothbard was dangerous because he was talking about them. And yeah, that was reading late Rothbard and and Hoppe and just honestly just Mises Institute articles and lourockwell.com and things like that. And going to Mises University in 2018 was really my shift, which at that point, obviously, I had been involved in liberty spheres for years, had never read anything, was just spouting, you know, slogans, but still not really feeling like I was fitting in with those people anymore. I was out of college in 2018 at that point. So the rush of being a student activist was gone and feeling important. And I was really just struggling to find my own identity in the political sphere and otherwise, to be honest. And reading people like that and being surrounded by good people like that really helped me out of that. And it sounds very, (laughs) they just helped me educate myself, I'll just say. And I feel like uh, Hoppe has one interview where he says, I honestly feel like the big problem between what libertarianism was and what it is now is people just don't read much. And I know it's a meme. I understand not everybody's going to read it and get it, which is something I used to believe as well. There are people you could shove as many books down their throat that are red-pilled as you want. They're never going to get it. But it at least led me to allying with people who do get it who previously I would have looked at and said, well, you're just as evil as left-wing people. And now I realize, no, they're my natural allies, and I'm actually as right-wing as you can be. So (laughs) that's something that helped me a lot. And uh, I'm glad that I I got out of that circle because I'm not really sure where I would be if I hadn't, so.
0: Yeah, over this whole period, say, well... Over a decade, I have grown more nuanced on my views, especially with regards to culture, immigration, and intersexual dynamics. And I've grown like more paleo, if you will, if not just like changed altogether when it comes to how I identify politically because I'd say I'm like a hybrid of like a paleo libertarian and paleo conservative because I'd say next to Ron Paul, my biggest influence was Pat Buchanan. And I kind of got into that space through that. And on the point you mentioned about lourockwell.com, I've been religiously reading that website, I'd say for the better part of 15 years. And I think that's what kept me from ever like fully falling down that left libertarian space. I've had like flirtations with it, but yeah. I've never fully gone down that regime libertarian route.
1: Yeah, I think looking back, I always would tell people I wasn't left wing. And I don't think I was consciously, I think it was just, I was surrounding myself with the more regime left libertarian people and hadn't read things that pull you out of that like or or any other, you know, more paleo libertarian authors. And that's why I'm glad that I finally got exposed to them because I do think they kind of pull you out of that that liberal la-la-la space and bring you back to reality and, and how the world actually works <laughs> instead of just talking in, you know, theory that sounds nice and, and saying a bunch of slogans and stuff like that.
0: So yeah, going back to like polarizing issues because really a lot of these like schisms don't just happen just out of nowhere. There's oftentimes like, I would argue, civilizational issues that do separate ourselves from others, especially those of like leftist inclinations. On what issues would you say that your views have changed over the last decade or so, or at least become more nuanced on?
1: I think immigration was a big red pill moment for me. I was never someone who, I don't think I would have ever called myself an open borders libertarian per se, but I was surrounded by those people. And I definitely would not have wanted to associate with anyone who didn't call themselves an open borders person. Now, I had no idea what I was talking about. I hadn't even read leftist theory or anything on that or why they believed it or why these left libertarians were saying that. It was just one of those, well, yeah, that sounds nice. (laughs) So I guess I'll go along with it, which reading Hoppe has obviously helped a lot with and, and people like that. So immigration, I've definitely changed a lot on. Also, just gender issues in general. I have told my followers jokingly, though I'm starting to perhaps seriously consider reviewing my old Facebook posts from circa, you know, 2016, even 2017 to a certain extent, and just laughing at myself because I had said things like I was getting angry at people who said women couldn't be good libertarians and things like that. And then <laughs> You know, just gender issues, just feminism. I've never called myself a feminist. I think I've always thought feminists were crazy, but I don't think I understood how deep those ideas run in a lot of movements, even, you know, what I lovingly call Con Inc. at this point. They have a lot of, even though they say they're anti feminist and things like that, when you really look at what they're saying, It just doesn't make any sense. And they're not. And I think that's the kind of person I was. I I wouldn't have never called myself a feminist, but I was being surrounded by, you know, feminists for liberty and things like that when I would go to these activism conferences in college. And I always thought it was kind of weird, but it never really bothered me. And then the more I started speaking out, about gender issues and and honestly, it really helped reading just a lot of the red pill guys in the <laughs> manosphere as much as I hate that word. Um, <laughs> yeah. That helped me with my views on. <laughs> I just I just hate that word so much. It's just so shout out to Rolo. <laughs> yeah. I shout out to Rolo. Uh reading that kind of stuff helped me a lot and it was really interesting. I started reading more red pill literature and intersexual dynamic stuff right around the time where I was reading late Rothbard and you know his writings against egalitarianism and stuff like that. And both of the things started to click at the same time. And I realized that the reason I had such a big problem with, with feminism and all of these weird we need diversity type things in liberty movements, like, oh, well, we need more female libertarians and we knew more minority, non-white libertarians. And I just kept thinking, but why? Why is that so important to you? And I started to realize why it was so important because they're fundamentally, these people are egalitarian and I'm very much not. And that's when I split and started calling myself Hoppian in private. And then finally, when I felt I read enough in public, which was just this past year, I just openly started calling myself Hoppian, though people had been calling me a filthy Hoppian alt-righter for years, but which I obviously don't identify with (laughs) alt-right thing. But that's just what you get called when you're not a leftist at this point. So yeah, I got into both of those at the same time. So gender and immigration are probably the biggest two things. And I think it's just because they fundamentally, at least with leftists, they they run in the same vein of they're very much egalitarian about those things. And and I think that's idiotic to put it mildly. (laughs) So that's definitely something I, I wouldn't say changed my mind on, but I got educated on it and stopped associating with those people who didn't believe those things that I was starting to believe.
0: For me, the immigration question was always kind of basic in how Even like as like an immigrant coming from like Venezuela and all that, I've never really had the obsession that some people have with immigration. I personally don't want to live like in a community that's like a facsimile of Latin America because like my family left that stuff for a good reason. And I don't want to relive that type of experience. And let's like face it. Immigration isn't just some spontaneous movement of people. Like they bring a culture and all that. And if you bring enough of them, those areas where they settle down, they basically get terraformed into a facsimile of the cultures they left. And eventually the historic nation that's hosting all these people will get transformed and oftentimes for the worse. And like I tell people all the time that when you combine like mass migration with this entire effort by the managerial state to break down the entire family structure of like the historic American nation, you're going to get this civilization-destroying scenario by the end of this century if things keep going the way they're going, where we're going to be talking about the long-lost tribes of the Euro-Americans because we're heading towards a civilizational disappearance type of moment if we don't get our act together. And that's why like the left is just obsessed with reconstructing everything from demographics through mass migration to gender relations and all of that, and they push this just accelerationist package of socially destructive measures that I think will <laughs> basically result in like the disappearance of our society. And that's why I constantly rail against this stuff. And sorry if I come off as some like cantankerous reactionary, but I actually like believe in a normal society. Yeah. Radical as yeah. that may sound. <laughs> yeah.
1: I think yeah, especially these days. I think a big red pull moment for me in my my change from little baby Lulbert student activist to where I am now is realizing that all these things that more left-leaning people in, in all political spheres, whether libertarian or just, just anything else that's considered leftist, I realized that these people weren't pushing these ideas because they were just misguided and it just sounds really good. And, you know, just open borders and like, where are people going to go? They're refugees, you know, we we should help them and, and having a good or seemingly allegedly good reason behind what they're doing. Same thing with gender. These people weren't pushing equality and feminism and things like that because, they genuinely believe that. Maybe the people at the bottom, maybe people like me when I was in college, just saying, well, yeah, open border sounds nice, but but the people running the shindig, the people closer to the top, politicians certainly, pushing these things, they don't mean well. They actually, they're civilization destroyers and that's exactly what they mean to do. And that's their goal. And once I realized that, it was very, it was a shock because I realized, well, that means I'm not gonna be able to convince everybody. And that means that maybe some people, they're not as well-intentioned as I thought they were. And that was really hard for me to deal with being a, a naive young person, obviously. But I've really come to terms with it. And I think meeting a lot of great people in more right-wing spheres who are telling me, actually, like you just said, I'm not a crazy reactionary. I just want a normal <laughs> functioning civilization and normal functioning <laughs> society. I'm not crazy for telling you people that you're crazy because you know, you're know you indoctrinating boys to think they're girls and things <laughs> like that. That's not normal. This is None of this is normal. Mass immigration is not normal and replacing populations is not a normal thing. And they're not just doing it to help people. In fact, they're doing it to do the exact opposite. And you're not crazy for realizing that. It's very obvious, especially I feel like for me personally, not being in politics as long, especially over what's been happening the past two years, these policies, they're not accidental. They want you dead. Like people think you're crazy when you say that. Yeah. And I used to look at people, when people would say that to me, when I was like 22, 23, I'm 28 now, I would look at them and say, you sound crazy. What are you talking about? You're a conspiracy theorist. And now I have a t-shirt on my shop that says, I'm not gonna live in a pot and I'm not gonna eat bugs. Like I am the person that I thought was crazy you know, seven, eight years ago, which to me, growth, that's great. And hopefully more people move that way. But but I've accepted, I'm just going to need to find good allies that have already moved that way and not count on all these people to magically wake up because some of them aren't misguided. They're just, to be honest, they're just evil. So <laughs> that was a big red pill for me, but but I've come to terms with it. And it's actually kind of comforting because Now that I know that, I can move forward and find people who are actually good allies that believe the same things I do instead of trying to make peace with people who just don't want peace with me. In fact, they want the exact opposite,
0: so. yep, very crazy times. And I think when you look at like the backdrop that we're against like the breakdown in social order, the open borders, rising inflation, and now like the efforts to get us into World War Three right oh, yeah. now with like this whole Russia Ukraine drama. We're in a very scary time. We're living in a really scary time, and I think it's probably just going to get like even nastier. So, where do you think things are headed these days in the U.S.?
1: Oh goodness, I at first I was hopeful because they were dropping restrictions. Obviously, with the craziness over the past two years which I never had where I lived. I'm blessed to live in the Midwest in a non-crazy area, at least. And I know not everyone is. And some people are still crazy. But yeah, the biggest hope that I have for the United States, I mean, it's really easy to get blackpilled, as they say, and think, well, things are going down. Just do what you can. Yeah. you know, make the Make the allies you can, which I don't think is bad advice, regardless of where you think things are heading. I think localism and building community is definitely going to be a key thing that everyone needs to do. Yeah, I'm somebody that tweets and makes YouTube videos, but I've started going to county council meetings and allying with the boomers and <laughs> they can be allied with on, on things that we agree on and things like that. And I think that's what everybody should be doing. I'm not very helpful for where the US is heading, to be honest, but I honestly just try not to focus on it because I, I think if you focus on things too much, <laughs> it's good to be aware. And now I'm aware of these things. But the more I obsess about it and the more I watch every little thing they do and I know exactly what they're doing, the more I get way too invested. And I almost think that's a sigh up in and of itself. When I was so invested in politics, not that it's not good to be aware. Everybody should be educated on this stuff at the very least. So you know what they're doing to you, at least. So when stuff hits the fan, should it hit the fan, when it hits the fan, whatever your opinion is, you're going to want to know why so we don't, Hopefully, don't do it again. <laughs> Whoever makes it doesn't repeat the same mistakes, but I think focusing too much on politics and not focusing on as uh, people hate when people say, family and and community, blood and soil, whatever you want to call Low it. Adversity. Yeah. <laughs> when you don't focus on that stuff, I think it's it's really easy to get sucked in. I think that's when people go way too far down the rabbit hole, which I myself almost did, so I completely understand. But I've just been trying to focus on myself, my family, and things like that and doing what I can do locally and just hoping that that's enough and hoping enough people wake up to that because, honestly, at this point, that's all we really can do. And I think realizing who your actual enemies are and and not thinking that right-wingers are just as bad as left-wingers is is a really good start.
0: <laughs> yeah, i I can actually relate To like a lot of the stuff you said, because I actually come from a kind of like grassroots lobbying background. I've done a ton of political work back in the day. But at the end of the day, there's only so much you can do when it comes to politics. And there's other stuff that you have more control over, whether it's like making money, getting your finances right, raising a family, building like a tribe of like-minded people, etc., etc. So that stuff is just like much more productive at the end of the day. And just focusing on like politics and all that, you just are just going to go nuts. You basically turn into almost like this weird caricature, but like on the right of like what these leftist freaks on social media are. And you just end up turning into that, like you kind of become what you fight. And that's why I tell a lot of people like they just need to get productive hobbies that improve their health, their relationships, finances and all that jazz. Because politics is kind of for the birds and. To be honest, a lot, a lot of this stuff just has to go in its natural course because we're ultimately going to be the next elite, if you will. And we should be prepping to build like the infrastructure and all that so that if things like really do get out of hand, we have like an actual like set of institutions, networks, and all that that people can turn to when the present system falls apart. That's why I think it's much more important these days to do as opposed to like, I don't know spending like an hour just doom scrolling on Twitter or all this stuff because it's just not productive. I I don't do that stuff. It's time to produce, not be a mindless consumer.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I, I think I got to the point where, you know, we all make fun of the leftist trope, especially after what happened. I think it was in Portland when they tried to build that garden Uh, when they had their little autonomous zone up there and they couldn't even, they just put a tarp down with dirt and everyone in the Midwest and anywhere that's been around any soil or the land or anything was just going, what are these people think they're doing? It's fine and dandy to make fun of those people, but at a certain point, I started looking at myself and going, well, what skills do I have? Like I'm saying I'm better than these people, maybe philosophically and politically, but do I have any skills? Would I be able to do those things if, if I, you know, needed to? No. So, you know, I've gotten really involved. I have a friend who's really involved in homesteading and things like that. And I'm not a homesteader, but she's been helping me garden and things like that. And just prepare just little stuff. Just do anything that you can to try to make sure that you have skills that you might need. Or just, you know, whether it be just have a family. I mean, I'm a woman. So that's one of the easiest things I I personally can do and have done um, is just, just have a family and just don't ship them off to public school. There you go. You're doing more than the boomers ever did for a lot of us. So... I think that's definitely a start and not doom scrolling on Twitter is uh, definitely definitely a life pointer. I took about an eight-month break courtesy of the Twitter sphere that kicked me off, but it was really nice to take an eight-month break, (laughs) stream every once in a while, but not constantly scroll through Twitter. I mean, I'm back now, but I've limited my time a lot more and You know, if I get a tweet that goes big, I just mute it. Like, it's fine. That's what the leftists do. I don't have to argue with these people that I'm never going to convince. Just I put my stuff out there. That's all you can do. And and focus on yourself and your family is, is a much better, much better use of your time. Absolutely.
0: All of that is fantastic advice. And I think people should take that into account and not try to pursue really fantastical political projects and other unproductive activities. Like, say... Giving $50,000 of lifetime donations to conservatism, Inc. organizations, which is a waste of money. Those type of resources and time can be allocated towards more productive endeavors in your personal life. Well, I think that's all the time that we have for today. Kenzie, where can my followers keep up with your latest work?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, The easiest way to find all my social media and everything is on my website, which is KenziePuff.com. So that's K-E-N-Z-I-E-P-U-F-F.com. All my social media is linked there. There's some other info about me if they just generally want to know more about me on there and you can find me there.
0: Fantastic. Well, to my audience, thank you again for taking the time out of your day to listen to El Nino Speaks. And until next time, El Nino has spoken.